All right, Second Peter chapter 3, and it's a short chapter, so we're going to go ahead and read the whole thing here. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken before, beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, these new heavens and new earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, I had us read all of that uh, to give a little context, but we're going to focus this morning, and at least next Sunday as well, on the first part of verse 18 of Second Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The letter of 2 Peter was written primarily to warn and to exhort believers to be on, on guard against the ungodly influence of various kinds of men. And on the one hand, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle in the Christian life is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces of wickedness. Demonic spiritual powers are the enemy of the Christian, in other words. But on the other hand, you have Jesus in Matthew 10 saying, beware of men. Beware of men. So how do these two truths fit together? Well, they fit together because the way in which those demonic powers and those spiritual powers of Ephesians 6 often express themselves is through the use of human beings. 
And so you can remember in Matthew 16 probably when Jesus is walking along with the disciples and he's explaining to them how it's been prophesied beforehand that he was going to suffer and die and be raised again. And Peter pipes up and says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Matthew reports that Jesus turns and it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Jesus recognized that Satan was the ultimate cause of that attack, but at the same time that that attack came through a man, the Apostle Peter. And isn't it something, beloved, that it's the same Apostle Peter who years later writes this letter that we now have, that we know as Second Peter, and he writes this letter primarily then to warn and to exhort believers to be on guard against the possible ungodly influence of men. You see, he knew firsthand how men can be, can be used as tools of the enemy. And there's obviously some overlap here, but in this letter, I see Peter warning us against three types of men, false teachers, mockers, and scripture distorters. And so if you turn back to chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction Upon themselves. And then he spends the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, describing what these false teachers are like. Here's some of the phrases he uses They are springs without water, they are mists driven by a storm, they're slaves of corruption who cause the way of truth to be maligned. Describing these false teachers. In modern terms, these could be certain prosperity gospel preachers or maybe hyper charismatic teachers who claim to represent the Lord Jesus, but instead are full of greed and sensuality, more concerned with satisfying their own lusts and for caring for the souls of men and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So false teachers. And then in chapter 3, Peter warns us about mockers. Chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. In the last days, the days according to Acts 2, the days in which we live, the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And whereas the false teachers were professing Christians, they're inside the the realm of, of Christendom, you could say, whereas the false teachers were professing Christians, the mockers stand outside of professing Christianity altogether and just kind of hurl mockings and insults at believers. In Peter's day, they were mocking Christians about the second coming of Christ. You can see that in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? You know, you say he was coming. Where is he? Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. Jesus hasn't come back. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Even back then, they were already hearing that kind of thing. Where is the promise of his coming? In our day, the mockers have broadened their horizons a little bit, and they mock Christians for anything and everything they can think of. Uh, when a disaster strikes somewhere in the world, you know, what's the charge? Where is your God now? Where is he now? If there is a God, why didn't he stop this from happening? 
or they'll mock Christians about the reality of hell or the Bible's stance on sexuality and marriage, whatever the case might be. I mean, let's be honest. You don't have to read very far on CNN or Yahoo News or anything else to see Christians being mocked for something almost every day of the week. And we shouldn't be surprised by it since God told us a long time ago that that was going to happen. And not only should we not be surprised by it, but we shouldn't even be discouraged by it either. Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when they do that. Blessed are you when you're mocked. Blessed are you. So the next time that someone mocks you or you hear or read about Christians in general being mocked, just kind of let that blessing wash over you. It's just a blessing. It's all it is. It's a blessing. And then lastly, Peter warns about Scripture distorters. I made that up, but I don't know what else to call them. Scripture distorters, chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. There's the word as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So scripture distorters. Now, first of all, it ought to encourage us here that Peter himself admits that Paul sometimes said things in his letters that were hard to understand. That ought to be an encouragement to us. But the problem is when Paul's hard things to understand come into contact with a person who is not submitted to the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God. And the result is professing Christians getting off into error through twisting or distorting of certain passages of Scripture. So, for, for example, people read in 1 Corinthians 3 about these professing Christians who are acting fleshly, they're acting carnally, they're acting like lost people, and they distort that into a teaching which says that a person can become a Christian at one time in their life and then act like a lost person for the whole rest of their life and still go to heaven. Carnal Christian. Other people read Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 4 that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, especially of those who believe. But God is the Savior of all men, and they'll twist that into the false teaching of universalism, which teaches that all people are going to eventually be saved. All people will eventually be in heaven. Hell is going to be empty. And it's important for us to realize, I think, because I think we can be somewhat insulated from some of these things, but I think it's important for us to realize that this is not just theory here. I mean, we're talking about things that, whether it's false teachers, mockers, scripture distorters, we're talking about things that we're going to face and that people in this room are going to face in their lifetime. And not just a little bit, but a lot, more than likely. We must be on guard. All three of these groups are alive and well today. And multitudes, beloved, multitudes of professing Christians are being ensnared by them. Multitudes. Not one of us here today should think that we're immune. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I'd never fall for that false teaching. You better be careful. That's your attitude. You better be careful. 
So Peter says here then in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men, these scripture distorters, and fall from your own steadfastness, knowing that you're going to run into these false teachers, knowing that you're going to run into these mockers, knowing that you're going to run into these scripture distorters, be on your guard. And I like the way the ESV translation says, it says, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care that you don't lose your own stability. The foundation begins to shift. You begin to topple. Take care that you don't lose your own stability. But Peter gives more than just a negative warning here. He doesn't just stop with be on your guard, but he exhorts us there in verse 18 to grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, not falling from our own steadfastness, not losing our stability, requires more than just being on guard. It requires growth, positive growth, growing which brings us to our focus here for today. And what I'd like to do this morning is just focus in on this word grow in verse 18 and make four observations this morning about growth in general in the Christian life that we can glean, I think, from this passage. And then next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll consider what it means specifically to grow in grace. And there may be a third message on growing in knowledge yet, I'm not sure, but at least this week and next week we'll be here in Peter. But today, anyway, we'll consider four general observations or four principles on growth in the Christian life, emphasizing this one word there in the verse, grow, the first part of verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the first observation, the first principle is this, that growth requires the presence of life. Growth requires the presence of life. Peter's exhortation here is for us to grow, but something can't grow until it's first alive. A dead plant not only won't grow, it can't grow. It can't. You can't do it. It's an impossibility. In the same way, it's an impossibility for someone who is spiritually dead to spiritually grow. And spiritually dead is exactly the condition of everyone who is born into the world. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul's talking here to Christians, but he's reminding them of what they were like before they became Christians. And he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You're dead, but you're walking. Dead man walking. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived. Paul includes himself in this. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But there in verse 1, Paul just flat out says it. You were 
dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Everyone who was born into this world is born in a state of spiritual death, dead towards God, dead towards the Word of God, no interest in spiritual truth, no concern for their own soul, no concern for the things of heaven and hell, the things of eternity. And the exhortation to such people is not, you need to grow. The exhortation to people like that, the exhortation to dead people is you must be born again. You need life, you see. You need to be born. You need life. And so Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, did what? made us alive. See, it has to start there. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He made us alive. We were dead. He made us alive. And now we can grow. But there must be life before there can be growth. And I think this is a good reminder for those of us here who are parents. And it applies in a lot of different areas. But specifically, I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of a parent. We need to be careful here because our children do need moral education. There's no doubt about that. The Bible commands us as teachers, as parents, to teach our children the scriptures, uh, to train them up in the way they should go, for example. But at the same time, we've got to be careful because it's very easy to be harsh on our children because they're not, quote, acting Christian enough, when in fact they're not Christians at all in the first place anyway. I remember one time Adeline was, was running around playing, and I hadn't read to her yet from, she has one of those Jesus storybook Bibles. and So I said, you know, let's sit down, let's read a story here. I think this will be fun. And no, she wanted to read Berenstain Bears. Well, what am I going to do, you know? I mean, am I going to make an issue out of this? No, you will read. You will read about the love of God right now. I mean, what kind of message is that sending? You know, we shouldn't expect them to spiritually grow if they don't have any spiritual life. Now, don't misunderstand me. Again, I'm not saying we don't teach our children. I'm not saying that there's times when I force my children to read (laughs) when they don't really want to. But on the other hand, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful that you're not placing expectations upon your unconverted children that can lead to exasperated children and frustrated parents. We just need wisdom, don't we? We need God's help in knowing what to do as parents. But anyway, the first principle this morning, growth requires the presence of life. Second principle, second observation here, is that growth is possible. It really is. Growth is possible in the Christian life. If you are spiritually alive here today, if God has made you alive together with Christ, then you can grow. Growth really is a possibility. Peter here is not exhorting us. When Peter says grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he's not exhorting us here to do something that we can't do. He's exhorting us to grow because growth really can happen in the Christian life. Beloved, God did not save you. He did not make you alive. He did not raise you up together with Christ so that you could stay the same old person that you've always been. No. 
the person that you once were, that old person has been crucified, is buried, is gone, and you now have been raised up as a new creation in Christ. God has put his very life inside of you. The Holy Spirit, the life of God, is invincible, indestructible life is in you, causing you to grow. He is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And because he is at work, then we can, in response to that, work out our own salvation. We can grow. And whether you've been a Christian for 40 seconds or 40 years, you can grow. You can change. I like the way Psalm 92 says it. It encourages me as I, as I get older and start thinking of um, down the road. This is from Psalm 92. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. <laughs> they shall be full of sap and very green. Isn't that amazing? They shall still yield fruit in old age. They'll be full of sap and very green. And we associate greenness with a young tree. Bible says, though, that it's just the opposite. It's like the older you get, the greener you get. <laughs> the more fruit you produce, the more sap you have. Psalm 92, 12 through 14. It's an encouraging passage. Don't be discouraged about the future, beloved. <laughs> Let this encourage you. You can grow. You can change. Not just somebody else, but you. Sins that seem to cling so tightly can be overcome. Attitudes, responses, reactions, maybe, that have been kind of ingrained in your personality for years can be changed. They really can. You can actually leave this place even today further along in the Christian life than you were when you walked in. I mean, isn't that why we're here? If that's not why we're here, then why are we here? What's the point? You know, the point is, the expectation is, the hope is, is that we're going to come in here and hear something and see something, spiritually speaking, that will enable us to leave this place further along than we were when we walked in the door. If that's not your expectation, then you might, you might as well not even come. I mean, really, what's the point? You're just coming together for the worse, like Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11. But we need supernatural help. Paul can plant, Apollos can water, but God must cause the growth. So, second general observation here, that growth is possible. And that, let that encourage you, no matter where you're at today, no matter what you're struggling with today. No matter how little it seems like you're growing or changing, you really can grow. The third observation here, third principle, is that growth is necessary. Not only is growth possible, but growth is necessary. And if you're going to withstand these onslaughts of false teachers, mockers, scripture distorters, you need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. A stagnant Christian is in constant danger of losing his or her stability. And the same is true of a whole body of believers who are growing stagnant, no longer growing as they ought to. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians 4. I think this is a very helpful parallel passage on 2 Peter 3. 
Ephesians 4, we'll start in verse 7. We'll kind of skip around a little bit here. Paul says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now skip down to verse 11 and listen to this growth language here that Paul brings out, starting in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul says there, verse 14, we're no longer to be children, you know, no longer tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, the language here is very similar to what Peter says back in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter speaks of falling from our own steadfastness or losing our stability. Paul speaks of being tossed here and there by waves, unstable, you see, tossed around. Peter speaks of being carried away by the air of unprincipled men. Paul speaks of being carried about by the trickery of men. See, it's almost the exact same words even. They both describe the danger using very similar language, and they both describe the solution in the same way too. Peter says that the key to not losing your stability is to grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge. And Paul says the exact same thing here. Notice a few of these phrases. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How do you keep from being tossed about, tossed to and fro? Well, you build one another up in the body. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, until we all attain to this unity, until we become mature. Again, the key to not being tossed here and there is growing up, being mature. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, growth is not simply possible, but growth is absolutely necessary to keep from being tossed about, to keep from being unstable, losing your stability. There's that old saying, the best defense is a good what? Offense, right? Best defense is a good offense. If you're going to withstand the onslaughts of ungodly men, the solution is growing in grace. Not simply defending, you see, but positively growing. One of the problems I ran into early on in my Christian life, and I think it was because one of the things God used to save me was apologetics and um, things like 
what was that guy's name? Josh McDowell, and some of his writings were helpful to me uh, around that time. He does a lot of apologetics and things like that, defending the faith. But one of the problems that I ran into is that I spent way too much time defending Christianity and not enough time actually growing as a Christian. You know, it's, you're a brand new Christian and all these things to you are so clear and so obvious and you find out that there's actually people who don't even believe that God exists and they have these arguments for it and so you listen to their arguments and you come, you've learned these counter-arguments, you know, proving that no, God does exist. And then you find out that people believe that the Bible has errors and it's not really God's word and it can't be trusted and so you learn all the arguments to counter that and so on and it just goes on and on like that, listening to the mockers, the scoffers, and you're trying to learn all these arguments to counter them, apologetics, defending the faith. And what happens is, now listen carefully, because I think this is, I think this happens more than we realize. But what happens is you end up building a wall of intellectual defense around your Christianity. But you yourself are not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ personally. All you're doing is learning arguments, you see. And a person in that position is ripe for spiritual attack. Ripe. Why? Because your trust is not so much in God himself. Your trust is in your ability to prove God, to defend God. You're trusting in your wall rather than in the strong tower of God's name. And as soon as one of these mockers comes along with an argument that you can't answer, and, beloved, there's always arguments that you can't answer. You might as well deal with it now. There are. At least you can't answer them to their satisfaction, for sure. But as soon as one of these mockers comes along with an argument that you can't answer, you're totally cast down in depression, despair, totally cast down. Why? Because your faith was in the wrong place to begin with, you see. You weren't trusting in God himself. You were trusting in your ability to defend God or your ability to prove God or whatever. Someone comes along and punches a little hole in your wall, and it's like you've lost everything because your faith was in the wrong place to start with. You've got to have something positive to fall back on, you see. That's the point. Something positive, not just defending, not just building a wall, something positive. Are you growing? Do you know God? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? Is it in the person of Christ himself or in your ability to defend Christ? There needs to be positive growth, not just standing guard, but actually moving forward on the pathway of grace and knowledge. And that will keep you from losing your stability. If you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that will keep you stable, even if you're not able to answer all the mockers. All right, last one, fourth observation, fourth principle this morning is that growth is a process. Growth is a process. Now, I find this one a real blessing. Another way to say it is that growth in the Christian life is progressive. It occurs in stages. The word itself implies that, doesn't it? Grow. It implies a process. It implies Stages, it implies progressiveness. Something starts out small and it gets larger. Something starts out weak and it gets stronger. Growth. 
Think of this in the natural realm. Jesus himself made a parallel between spiritual growth in the kingdom of God and how things grow in nature. And I'll just read this to you. This is from Mark 4. It'll be familiar. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. You can picture this guy. He's kind of going out there just casting the seed on the ground. And he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. You see the process there? First the blade, this little bitty blade, and then you start to get a little actual grain on there. It's small, you know, and then it's mature. It can be harvested. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. There's steps, you see, steps in growth. It's a process. It occurs in stages. No one can snap their fingers and make a full-grown oak tree appear in their yard. Can't do it. It all starts with this tiny little seed. You see, the acorn is actually not the seed. The seed is inside the acorn. It's small. Tiny little seed inside of this acorn And that gets planted, watered, tended, and pretty soon you have this little sprout. You know, maybe this yay tall or whatever. This little oak tree sprout. And that sprout is so weak that a toddler could come along and pull that thing out. And that would be the end of that tree. So it takes more tending and more watering and more care. And you might put a little fence, you know, around your sprout to keep animals from getting to it or to keep toddlers from yanking on it, in our case. Gets a little bigger, a little stronger. And then sometimes you see people, they'll anchor. As it gets larger, they'll kind of anchor the trunk, um, you know, with bungee cords or something to keep the wind from bending that tree over. Soon that sprout becomes a sapling, you know, maybe a couple, two or three feet tall. Eventually that sapling is strong enough that you can take the fence down and you can remove that anchor and you can allow that sapling to kind of stand on its own against the elements. And then years go by, literally years, beloved, years, plural, (laughs) years. And eventually that tiny seed has grown into something so tall and so strong that it can withstand almost anything that nature can throw at it. Now, do you remember what Isaiah 61 says about Christians? It says, they will be called, what? Oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Every Christian is an oak of righteousness that God himself has planted. And you are so small and so weak at first that it looks like you're going to be blown away by the first stiff breeze that comes along. But because God himself is the planter, he knows how to take care of you. He tends, he waters, he cares. Yes, he prunes bad things off. 
He might have to put a protective fence around you at some point because you're, you're too weak to stand on your own. But eventually, beloved, after years, plural, years of tender care, you will stand forth as a fully grown oak of righteousness that can withstand the onslaughts of these false teachers, mockers, scripture distorters. You never stand in your own strength, but you do stand because God is able to make you stand. But the one thing I want us to get here is that this is a process. It occurs in stages. There's no way around it, you see. You see, our problem is we want to circumvent the process. We don't like the idea of years. We want it now. Some of you will be familiar with the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There's a character of Veruca Salt, right? I want the works. I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises of all shapes and sizes and now. Don't care how, I want it now. Don't care how, I want it now. Sounds a lot like some Christians. Forget this tending and pruning and slow growing. I want to be a powerful, strong oak tree now. Don't care how, I want it now. Sorry. (laughs) It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, beloved. Every single Christian, every Christian goes through the process. Everybody. In fact, being strong-willed like that is actually just going to make the process slower (laughs) because God has to break you of that. He has to prune you of that strong will to even get you to grow. Rest assured, beloved, everyone goes through the progression from seed to sprout to sapling to mature oak. Everybody does. It's a process that takes years. But because God is the gardener, we can have confidence. We can have full assurance of faith that he who began a good work will perform it. You will be an oak of righteousness. No matter how weak and exposed and battered you feel, he has promised that a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And when it feels like everyone else is racing ahead of you, you know, and you're kind of left behind in the dust, remember that God himself has said that he would never leave you nor ever forsake you. Even if it feels like other people are, he won't. As surely as God is God, you will be an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Growth is a process, but the process is certain when God is the one who's planted you. You hear that? Growth is a process. And we could actually, we could add that to the observations. Growth is certain for the Christian. It's a process, but it's certain when God is the one who's planted you. Well, those are, that's all I had really on that. Four general observations on growth in the Christian life and also something of an introduction here to Peter's exhortation to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the next week we'll consider specifically what it means then to grow in the grace of Jesus. We'll kind of be focusing on that word next week, grace. And we'll see that the foundation of growth in the Christian life, and growth and grace in particular, the foundation is objective truth about a living person. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in grace as we more and more appreciate, appropriate, love what he has done on our behalf as our Savior, friend, Lord, and brother. And we'll talk more about that next week. In closing, then, I wanted to share a hymn with you here just to read um, from John Newton. Some of you will have heard this before. Some of you may not have. It's not one of his more well-known ones. I don't think it's in our hymn book. But it fits in well with some of these things here that we've talked about, especially this last um, point, that growth is a process. This is called, I Asked the Lord. Now listen to these words. I asked the Lord that I might grow. That's what we're talking about, the growth this morning. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. So I'm praying for these good things, right? God himself is the one who teaches us to pray this way, to ask for these things, to ask for growth and grace and love and so on. But John Newton says he's answered it in such a way. God has answered that prayer for growth in such a way that it almost killed me, (laughs) almost drove me to despair. Here's what he goes on and says. He says, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. Right? I want it now. God, make me grow and make me grow now. Right? I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. So I thought God was going to answer this prayer just like that and just kind of pour out his love upon me. All my sins would be gone. Instead, Newton says, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, things that I didn't even realize were in there. God starts exposing these hidden evils. And he lets the powers of hell go on you. The the accusations, the slanders. And then Newton says, even more than that, it seems like God's own hand was was aggravating my misery. (laughs) He crossed all of my fair designs, all my, all my, my grand and glorious plans for ministry, for this and that and the other. It's like God just... He cast out my feelings, laid me low. And then Newton says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this, now listen, this is God's reply. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayer for grace and faith. It's like he wanted to grow, John. This is how I answer your prayer for growth. "'Tis in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayer for grace and faith." Last stanza. God is still speaking. "'These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me.'" You get that? You want to grow? 
then pray for growth, but realize it's going to cost you. That prayer is going to cost you. But beloved, when you come out on the other side and you're no longer seeking the things of the world the way that you were, you're no longer looking for your satisfaction ultimately in those things, and you're looking for it in God alone, you'll be glad that God answered your prayer in the way that he did. These inward trials I employ, this should be so encouraging, beloved, because there's some of you who you struggle. There's things in your heart that God is showing you that you didn't, in a million years, you wouldn't have thought were there. Accusations and slanders in your mind. And you're wondering, what's going on? Well, this is what's going on. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. Amen.